0: Welcome to episode six of our masterclass on the new marketing rule. I'm Carlo DeFlorio and I lead ACA's advisory business. I'm delighted to moderate this final episode, which is focused on implementation of the new marketing rule with a very talented and experienced panel, which includes Craig Watanabe, Julia Reyes and Chaz Spiros. Let me ask each of you to briefly introduce yourselves. Craig, he's first.
1: Hi, sure. Hi, I'm Freddy. My name is Julia Reyes. I'm a partner at ACA, and I work specifically in our Performance Services Group. I look forward to talking to everybody today. Hi,
2: and I'm Craig Watanabe from DFPG Investments. Uh, it's a pleasure to be invited to, prevent, to present with this uh, all-star team
3: on the Marketing Rule Masterclass. And I'm Chad Spiros, and I'm a Principal Consultant in the U.S. Reg Division of ACA, and similarly look forward to providing some expertise there. So great.
0: Let's get started and take a moment to set the context for this final episode. In our prior five episodes, we heard from the regulators on key policy objectives of the rule, FAQs, and how they are going to examine for the new rule. We've also heard from other panels on tricky legal aspects of the rule and the impact of the rule on private funds. We then had two deep dive uh, panels, episodes, into the newest areas with the biggest changes in the rule. Uh, That's performance and then testimonials, endorsements, and third-party ratings. So In this final episode, we build upon these lessons with a focus on key compliance considerations for successfully implementing the rule. So with that, let's dive in. And Craig, let me start with you. Implementing the marketing rule is a big project. Do you have any suggestions on where to begin? I do, and I think when tackling big projects,
2: uh, it can be very helpful if you can break it down into distinct phases uh, that are maybe a little bit more manageable. So, With regard to the task at hand, the marketing rule, I would break it down into four phases. One, drafting your policies and procedures. Two, creating or modifying your marketing review workflows. Three, setting a date for implementation
0: and training. And then fourth, performing testing and monitoring. Great, Julia. Do you have uh, suggestions on how to approach this exercise?
1: I do. Um, I think that one of the biggest changes with the rule is around some of the prescriptive requirements around performance. Um, and so, I think that we, we're gonna we talk a lot about that in detail in episode four. But I think the compliance team really needs to assess the changes um, and identify what is going to be required from other businesses within their, units within their firm. And so maybe that's operations, accounting or performance, but depending on the extent of those changes, it might take them a while to go back and do some calculations that they historically never did. Um, And so I would suggest starting with performance when thinking about what needs to get implemented.
0: Great. And you and Chaz work closely on a number of projects around this
3: new rule implementation. Chaz, any suggestions on your end? Yeah, absolutely. So from a non-performance standpoint, I would definitely consider what is brand new. And here, it's the no longer the prohibition on testimonials and endorsements. And so from that perspective, you know, if and how firms want to adopt testimonials and endorsements is really understanding the scope of where that could lead to, uh, where it would be implemented, the appropriate disclosures, the clear and prominent standards. So I think firms are really going to have to take a step back and say, okay, if we do want to implement this, how do we do it in the appropriate manner? And then considering that the old cash solicitation rule is now kind of lumped into this concept of testimonials and endorsements, who outside of the firm is going to be involved in that practice and how do firms get ahead of the disclosure requirements and ensuring that those disclosures are provided on an actual basis?
0: Excellent. Well, very good uh, introductory perspectives from all three of you. Appreciate that. Let's um, let's dive into some particular aspects of of implementation. And Julia, let me start with you. What suggestions do you have to help firms develop implementation timelines?
1: I think that it's important to consider when your firm wants to actually flip that switch and be in compliance with the new rule. The, the end deadline is November 4th, but that's kind of a strange time. And so if you're thinking backwards and you say you want your marketing to be all updated, all the collateral that you have by with your third quarter marketing material, then you can build backwards from that date to develop the plan for when you need to implement certain parts of the rule. Good um, good,
0: good. practical uh, perspective there. Chas, what about in your experience, what suggestions do you have around implementation timelines?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And so one of the things that we've observed, kind of in, and as Julie and I have gone through these marketing reviews uh, for certain clients is the sunsetting dates of existing material. So to the extent that you're not utilizing that material moving forward, uh, when's the sunset date? When does it come off a public kind of perception? So that might be press releases or existing social media, um, that might be out there, that might be shared on LinkedIn, understanding what the scope of that material is. Does it comply with the new marketing rule? And if it doesn't, how do you triage that on a, on a material by material basis or pull that down to make sure that you're not um, inadvertently uh, escaping the new marketing rule? So really understanding the sunsetting dates and understanding when you need to, 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 to take that material down.
0: Excellent. And, and Craig, what suggestions would you have around developing implementation timelines?
2: Yeah. So, with regard to the timeline, uh, I think every firm is different. Some firms are going to have a much, much easier time. Others are going to you know, really have a lot of work to do. And I think the key, I can kind of sum, uh, summarize my thoughts in one word, and that is assessment. You know, I think that each firm needs to do an assessment based upon you know, how this uh, rule will impact them. And based upon their assessment, then try to coordinate. And it might be helpful to go back to the four steps that I outlined previously, and uh, you know design a timeline uh, that makes sense for the firm.
0: That's great. That's very practical um, advice. Let's um, let's turn next to some of the the challenges in implementing the marketing rule. And Chaz, maybe start with you. In your experiences, you've been working with clients. What are some of those key challenges, and sure. how would you advise to navigate those?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the one of the first ones would be the books and records requirement of the new rule. So the SEC has been really clear that to the extent that there is a communication that's going to beyond one person, it, you know, it's going to be captured as an advertisement. So firms are really going to have to get their arms around how do they control the the broader picture of where the distribution of materials is going? Do they have the appropriate policies and procedures in place to have those types of controls? And that really kind of also focuses on testimonials. And so if you have a promoter out there in the field that is unaffiliated, how are you controlling the distribution of that material? Do you have memorialization of those communications? Do advisors uh, control the narrative with the disclosure that they provide to promoters? Or are they doing some sort of sanity check on a periodic basis that the promoter is doing, um, you know, their own disclosure. And so firms will have to get around that. From a practical perspective, one of the things that I've seen on our marketing reviews is really substantiation. You'd be surprised how many firms will say, we are the best at doing X, Y, and Z. And then when Julie and I are on a review, we say, well, you know, if the SEC were, were here on an exam, could you produce that in, in, a, in, a, in a relatively quick manner? And most of the answers are no. Um, that could be a rating and award that they're citing. That could be, Um, just where they're getting some sort of impetus for why they are the best at what they do. So I'm really seeing a lot of firms taking a step back and saying, "Okay, how do I get the substantiation? But then two, how do we save that substantiation down within proximity to the documentation itself so that if ever asked in the future, we could provide that uh, in quick order rather than being set on our heels and trying to scramble to find that substantiation?
0: That's a great. Yeah, I insight, to... as in in our uh, episode one discussion with with Chris Mulligan from the SEC exam program, he made the same point. Said their real focus is going to be significantly on
3: substantiation. Yeah, and and to your to your point, I think we've discussed it kind of at the top of our pre recording is just how focused the SEC will be on you know day one. They're coming in with the exam team with a brand new scope, a brand new. I mean, this is a you know plus plus-50-year-old um, rule that's being sunsetted. You have to expect that they're going to you know, dot their I's, cross their T's as they go through the examination. So firms really should be prepared to have that substantiation ready to go. And I, I know Craig had a, a point.
2: There. Yeah, so I think that's uh, of the seven general prohibitions, that's number two. And uh, I think it's worthwhile, if someone is interested, to go back and read the adopting release. And in particular, the SEC's comments with regard to general prohibition number two. What was striking to me is they're actually taking the position that if a firm is not able to substantiate a material statement of fact, their assumption is that it cannot be substantiated. So I think that's a really
0: interesting standard that they're coming in, and that one really caught my attention. Good caveat there, Craig. Um, that was another point that they they emphasized in episode one. Julia, what about from the perspective of performance? What are some of the key challenges in implementing the marketing rule that you're seeing and what kind of guidance are you providing?
1: I think we can quickly continue on that, that route of substantiation and talk about how what there are, some of the big changes around performance are need to present all portfolios, or, or if you're not going to show all related portfolios, you know, they, you need to make sure that the performance is higher than if not, if, if you excluded. And so I think a lot of firms may take that route of excluding certain assets, but relying on that, the fact that that performance is not materially higher, and better better well be that they have a substantiation for the fact that, that they're taking that choice of exclusion of something so i think that's something that you know I, I thought of as you guys were talking about substantiation that's a really good point but going back to the question of implementation and seeing what type of changes need to get made for your specific firm i think there are again are going to be some challenges with performance it's, it's it's a it's a big change for some firms but for some firms it's not going to be much of any change on the performance front they may have been doing everything already that was is, is required going forward but i i think that for some firms that haven't been historically maybe you're showing representative account performance and you need to go back and now create composites that you haven't had to create historically you potentially need to go back 10 years to do that work that's that's not an easy lift. And so hopefully the firms have, who have assessed to Craig's point, the fact uh, how the rule is going to impact them. They've already made that distinction that they need to go back and, and make that larger change. Um, and that they're in the process of going back and doing that now. And that it's not something that they're waiting a little bit towards the end of the summer to start that process. So I think that for large firms, systems exist to help them calculate performance, um, more often than not, and so the challenges around implementation of some of these performance changes is about, you know, identifying the work streams within their organization, finding the right teams involved, and making sure that everyone, that they're aware of all the groups that are going to be impacted during some of these these. The work that Chaz and I are doing, it's surprising to the compliance team. You know, they might think that performance is being done centralized with one team, but then you, as you start discussing with other parts of their business, we find that there are, there are small groups that will be calculating something on their own, some type of performance on their own. And so really understanding who's doing what at your firm, I think is really helpful just to make sure nothing falls through the cracks. Um, and, and we see that most often with large firms. And if we think about small firms, those firms may, may or may or may not have systems in place to help them calculate performance. Um, and from that perspective, they might need to go in and identify if current systems exist that can do the work that's going to be required going forward or if they need to make enhancements or potentially even purchase new systems to help them implement the rule. And so that's hopefully something that firms are are thinking about if if that, if they identify that there are changes that need to get made on the performance front that are more substantive than, you know, just what's being shown in, in the presentation.
2: I have a follow-up question for uh, Julia on performance. I know this is your area of expertise, but you know, a really commonly used tool very widespread within the industry is Morningstar. And the way it's commonly used is, uh, you know, a um, advisor, when talking to a prospect, will ask them, you know, uh, about their current portfolio and plug it into Morningstar and get some analytics. Now, under the definition of the new marketing rule, um, that's going to be hypothetical performance, but it's one-on-one. And there uh, is a specific provision within the rule that hypothetical performance, even in one-on-one presentations, is subject to the provisions of the rule. Now, there is a good example. You mentioned either centralized performance or decentralized. This is obviously going to be an example of decentralized, You know, because you might have multiple advisors out in the field using Morningstar, which is a very commonly used tool. Right? What sort of controls do you think that firms need to implement with regard to Morningstar, or if you're privy to what Morningstar is doing, because I imagine they're aware of this as well, and they're going to try to make every attempt that they can to create a tool that's going to be compliant out of the box for firms to use. So, how would you address
1: that? That's a good question with a few questions in there. I think more we have heard that Morningstar has made changes, and I think they've already gone into effect or will be going into effect later this summer where they're asking for firms that upload their performance to attest to the type of net of fee that they're using to ensure that they're complying with the new rule. And so that will be something that firms will start seeing if they haven't seen already um, this new attestation requirement. And then... the perspective of those firms pulling down that performance, to your point, it's considered hypothetical performance, and there's a restricted use component of hypothetical performance going forward. And so I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all response to to your question, but I think that for firms that are using that tool to pull down hypothetical performance... They need to ensure that the audience is sophisticated enough to understand that performance and that it's relevant to the prospective investor that they're showing that information to and be able to support that. And so that's where it's going to be a little challenging for firms. We've heard some firms are pulling back and maybe won't be showing hypothetical performance going forward. Other firms are able to put controls in place, whether it be a a check the box that the, the financial advisor may have to to place or the financial advisor will have to make their own attest, attestation that they themselves are being thoughtful about who that hypothetical performance is going to. Um, but that's, that's a practice that's being done today, to your point, Craig, that uh, I think needs reconsideration depending on how the rule is written.
0: Great follow-on uh, question and, and answer there. Thanks a lot, Craig and Julia. Julia, so you also made some really good observations around systems and stakeholders. And I know that When you and Chaz work together on gap analyses, you really emphasize the importance of identifying the right stakeholders. So you understand that the practical operational implications of the new rule and you can do training, right, with those stakeholders. Um, So you start with the gap analysis. Craig, maybe as we shift gears there, you know, you identified in your four point framework. Uh, starting with policies and procedures and how fundamental they are to the exercise. Let's pause there for a little bit and have a discussion around what are some key considerations in drafting policies and procedures? Yeah,
2: I think that's a good question. Uh, I would say that You know, I'm going to hearken back to some of the comments made by the two SEC staff members in episode one, where uh, they made comments with regard to a regulatory perspective that the SEC is coming in and really focusing on the adopting release of this rule and not relying upon any legacy elements of the old rule, no action letter, staff comments, and so forth. So, they're really trying to compartmentalize old versus new. And on the other hand, you know when drafting policies and procedures, I think that from our perspective as compliance officers, that continuity is advantageous whenever possible. You know that instead of you know not or disregarding, the elements of the old rule, but instead building upon it as a foundation, I think there's some definite utility to that with regard to the policies and procedures. And so I think that uh, along those lines, uh, I'm going to use an example, which I think makes my point, and that is in the adopting release, um, the SEC specifically stated that orderly newsletters that don't contain any sort of an offer of new advisory services, are not considered um, advertising or marketing and not subject to the rule. Whereas I'm going to say that it's pretty widespread in the industry that firms already require those to be submitted for advertising approval under the old rule. And so, do you want to make that change? Do you want to put your field force in a situation where they have to make the determination? as to whether something should be submitted for approval or not? Or do you want to make it easy and take a broader approach to the rule, rather than mirroring in your policies and procedures, rather than mirroring the rule itself, but instead maybe at times going a little bit broader for the sake of simplicity and continuity. And I think that's a really important consideration when drafting policies and procedures.
0: It's a great point that also distinguishes you know, the regulatory perspective and where they're coming from, which they need to make sure that firms are complying with the release and the rule text. But then the real day-to-day challenges of a firm and a compliance team and a business team, and to your point, you can make decisions to go above and beyond the rule for operational continuity, ease, and what you think works best to achieve the the objectives of, of the rules. So, great point. Chaz, what about from your perspective? You've also been in-house here on the sure. consulting side. What are some of the compliance, practical,
3: operational approaches you would take to policies yes. and procedures? Yeah, well, one, not not adopting a blanket or template policies and procedures to, to comply with the new marketing rule, because it is so specific. And I'll, and I'll kind of go back to something that Craig mentioned about a quarterly letter, um, and I was actually doing a review this week for a client. And I said, oh, you know, this quarterly letter or this investor letter that you presented may not be captured. Like, But they said, but we we may send this as a broader package of documentation to a prospect to illustrate some of the things that we provide. Which at that point in time, if you think about in its totality from a facts and circumstances basis, that letter now going to a prospect could be deemed as an advertisement. So to Craig's point do you really want to shift to an outright prohibition on just quarterly letters, even though the SEC says that the adopting release, one of the things that I really learned, I've been trying to communicate to compliance officers as we go through these reviews is that this this is a real opportunity for compliance teams to gain parity with internal business groups that may not have existed in the past. And so oftentimes when we go into the reviews, IR or business development, and when I say IR, investor relations or business development, might have a totally different perspective on the existing advertising and cash solicitation rules, what they might do. But the SEC has given us 18 months to comply with the new rule. And so it's really imperative for, for firms or I'm identifying that it could be a prudent exercise for them to develop the policies and procedures with your business units internally. So that you know day one, if you're adopting this at 1201 at, on November 4th, everybody handed, had a hand in developing those policies and procedures. The expectations of everybody are very clear. Rather than the compliance team you know, developing the policies and procedures, rolling them out a couple of days in advance, doing an attestation, making sure everybody has the requisite training, include the business units in the development of those policies and procedures. That way, you know, three months into the new marketing rule, everybody still has the same knowledge and expectation of how they are, are, are going to move forward. Um, and so that's what I've really been encouraging with policies and procedures: make it a team effort. Don't just make it a compliance effort. Really get the business units involved so that those reviews on an ongoing basis are easier because firm teams know that substantiation is going to be a big factor. So, just one element from a policy and procedures. Approach. I think
2: that's great advice, not just for the marketing rule, but <laughs> right. for compliance right. in general.
0: Right. Sure here.
2: Yeah. Be surprised.
1: It yeah. also helps with training. Mm-hmm. Right, You're, it helps the training. You have to inherently let the business unit know why these changes are happening, what framework they can work with, so they'll be yeah, educated on the new role along the way.
3: Yeah, and I, and I've, I've encouraged firms too just to to identify subject matter experts in those business units. Somebody who is a, a, a champion for the policy and procedure. Somebody who really is when you have new employees coming onto an investor relations team or a business development team that. They can set the expectations as a team rather than waiting for compliance to tell them. So identify key stakeholders internally. In, in addition to the teams, who's an individual that you can partner with to be a champion for those those policies and procedures.
0: Julia, what about your experience? Um, what have what have you observed around policies and procedures? And what suggestions would you have for firms as they develop policies and procedures here?
1: Yeah, I, I know. Talk a lot about when we're talking about policies and procedures, the compliance policy. The, the, the adopting release. Okay. Sorry about that. The adopting release speaks a lot about consistent application of practices around performance. So although it's not it's not something you would naturally put into your compliance manual, I do think that it's important for firms as they're looking to implement consistent practices around calculation methodology, frequency of updating performance the type of performance that you're showing, how you're calculating net, that, that that type of information should be documented, whether it be in a policies and procedures, a desktop procedure, somewhere to help your organization ensure that you're implementing those practices consistently.
0: Excellent. Craig, if I could come back to you for a second. Sure. Um, in your commentary on sort of the value of continuity and operational ease, And and the the reality that a firm may make a decision to assume a policy or procedure, even if it's not required by the rule. In our preparatory discussions, you shared a really good example around uh, pre-review and clearance. And can you share your thoughts on on that aspect of it? Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And the
2: adopting release, the rule, does not require pre-review and yet i would say that for the majority of firms they do require pre-review under the old rule and and i totally understand why the sec didn't go there it's because the new marketing rule includes private fund advisors and in the private fund advisor model where you're using a promoter or a consultant you know pre-review of a verbal uh, communication you know might be impractical and so I could totally understand, you know, why you wouldn't, if you were the CCO of a private fund advisor that used uh, promoters or consultants, why you might not want to incorporate pre-review. On the other hand, I think you know the majority of especially retail investment advisors that don't manage a private fund are used to pre-review and are probably
0: going to want to include pre-review in their uh, policies and procedures. Excellent. And on the flip side of that, you had also identified some interesting instances where compliance professionals may want to address new techniques and approaches that maybe they hadn't under the older regime. And I think two that stood out to me that you raised were around, one, adoption and entanglement, and two, around layered disclosure. Do you want to share a little bit of your perspective on that? Yeah, really good points that I think are specific to the new rule.
2: So, uh, again, I think I would refer back to the adopting release if someone has an interest. The SEC did a really good job in addressing the uh, clear and prominent disclosure requirement, uh, which is something new. So, because it's it's new, we didn't have to deal with this under the old rule. Uh, I think that it's worthwhile, uh, even for experienced compliance officers, to go back and really make sure that they're clear on what the the um, clear and prominent requirement is, and of course that's going to have to be uh, incorporated into the firm's new policies and procedures, and so we're going to have to address that. And it's not a new concept. Uh, it's it's uh, I think the um, uh, SEC first adopted that uh, over 10 years ago. It was adopted by FINRA uh, back in 2010, you know, and so it's it's been around a while. And fortunately, the description in the adopting release is consistent with how they've interpreted the clear and prominent uh, requirement in the past so there's in that respect it's not new but with regard to actually being uh, a component of the new marketing rule and has something that has to be incorporated into our policies and procedures that is new and where it's i think particularly challenging is again one of the big differences between the old rule and the new rule is the old rule was specific to written written advertisements and communications. The new rule is agnostic with regard to the medium of communication. So for us as compliance officers, we need to expand our horizon and think beyond the written word. You know, we could be looking at a YouTube video. We could be looking at, you know, uh, oral communications. We could be looking at, you know, comments in social media, right? And so I think that uh, somewhat we've been trained that oh when we're confronted with an advertising situation in many times we write disclosures well now we have to think a little bit differently because maybe if the communication isn't written the disclosures can't be written and so we have to think about that and you also mentioned carlo the concept of layered disclosures and and i have to say you know i I've, I've been in the industry for 40 years now i'm going on my 40th year in the industry and you know i considered advertising Yeah, something that was very, very familiar to me. And yet when reading the adopting release, I was not familiar with the concept of layered disclosures. It was new to me, you know, and I'd never in my 40 year career ever written a layered disclosure. And so again, I would encourage people to go back to the adopting release. I think there was maybe a couple of pages dedicated to the concept of layered disclosures. And so the way that I had always written disclosures under the old rule is I would see maybe it's a, a yeah, PowerPoint presentation or maybe it's a video. And then I would say, okay, I'd write my one page disclosure and i say, put this at the end. Okay, well, now if we need to meet that clear and prominent disclosure, that's no longer good enough that the uh, at least a part of the disclosure has to be contemporaneous with whatever triggered the need for that disclosure. And so we might have to put it clear and prominent that also refers back to the main disclosures at the end, and that that's what we call layered disclosures. And I think a good example, you know, would be if you're presenting hypothetical performance, right? Maybe a uh, a label within the the um, table or chart uh, that's describing the hypothetical performance, saying specifically that this is hypothetical, and then maybe a footnote underneath that uh, has a, uh, a small blurb and then refers to the main disclosures at the end. That's, I think, a good example of a layered disclosure. And again, that that's something that is new. It was new to me, and I'm going to guess it's new to most people. But to meet the clear and prominent disclosure, I think we need to think outside the box, beyond the written word. And in particular, we need to become familiar with the concept of how to create layered disclosures to meet that clear
0: and prominent requirement. Great, great suggestions. I also thought it was important what you said around social media because, you know, with everything we saw in the meme stock phenomena and volatility, the reality is now the policies and procedures need to address blogs and chat rooms like Wall Street bets, GameStop, and uh, need to contemplate how influencers and bloggers, you know, will be handled under endorsements and testimonials. So great, great points. Chaz, why don't we move to you? And talk a bit about what are some key considerations
3: in marketing approval workflows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we may talk about this at a later point in time. Is having potential technology that could really assist in that process, making it succinct, making sure that you have controls around finalized versions of materials to make sure that you know. Kind of going back to what we were saying about you know how you control the distribution of material. Uh, making sure you do have the process and the policies and procedures in place to ensure that to the extent, you know, material is being distributed, you understand where it's going, you understand what's contained in it. You know that it's a finalized version uh, that could include some sort of stamping on the materials itself. So from a workflow perspective, I would really encourage firms to the extent they're not utilizing already technology to to systematize it, to memorialize, you have an audit trail um, you know, ACA has a wonderful tool and of compliance offer for the marketing review. We know firms that are utilizing Salesforce, for instance, um, but that really allows you in many ways too, from an approval and a workflow process process document who the intended audience is. You know, there's normally a client tagged with the specific material that's going out. But having that audit trail for me is going to be really or what I've told firms is going to be really critical, even though there's not a pre-review requirement to the extent that you're using hypotheticals to the extent that you have an intended audience that compliance has had that framework in mind when reviewing materials to understand how they might need to think about that. I think systematization is going to be really critical on that aspect. Thanks, Chaz.
0: Yeah. Julia, what about from your perspective? What are you, what are you seeing and observing? And what do you think are key considerations in marketing approval workflows?
1: Yeah, I actually have a question to go back to Chaz on this one, because mm-hmm. during the course of, of the reviews that we're doing in the context of performance, a lot of these conversations compliance is saying they don't review performance. They just, they, that's not, they're relying on the, the teams who are creating that information to make sure that that's accurate. It's not really something they'll do. Maybe as part of their annual program, they'll do spot checks, but it's not really part of the the live process to review marketing before it gets approved and disseminated. And so I'm curious, Chaz, what your thoughts are around the way the new rule is written. Do you expect to see compliance programs adjusting for that and maybe doing a little bit more substantiation around performance?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, at first, I should say, anytime I've heard where compliance says they don't review, you know, performance generally, and that they might do some sanity check, out, to me that that doesn't hold water in in a lot of ways. Because as a compliance professional, the kind of the buck stops with you when you know right before the material goes out. And so if you had any reasonable belief to know that, you know, information was not correct or that it was stale, that's on compliance in a lot of ways because they should be controlling kind of the the flow of the information. I absolutely expect partially from the, you know, we keep talking about the concept of substantiation. If the final review is happening by compliance, I would surely expect a compliance professional or somebody who may have an expertise, or maybe it's somebody who, is independent of the document production process that might be on the operations team to sit in or have input on the performance that's being shown to, to have that last layer of sanity check for that substantiation element. I mean, how do you argue that in an SEC examination when you know an examiner asks a CCO, hey, I see this performance in here, it's incorrect. Why didn't you catch it? I would rather have an explanation in place to say, you know what, that might must have been a pitfall, but you know what, we have policies and procedures in place to try and catch this. I have a subject matter expert from a team that helps me review this prior to distribution. So to your point, yes, I would absolutely expect compliance teams to really hunker down in this aspect. And then also, too, what we've seen as a, as a common theme is doing a back testing analysis just to make sure that everything is being documented appropriately. Further to that point, we, we when we talk about substantiation, we think about the, the the concept of proximity with disclosures, I think about proximity of the substantiation, right? And I talked about this kind of at the top of the podcast. If you're a compliance professional and you're seeing presentation performance, one of the questions I'd be asking is, where's the documentation, where's the Excel file that memorializes? Or if you have a performance system, for instance, that continually updates and doesn't take a snapshot in time, start saving down that snapshot. That way you know where your numbers are coming from. Because if for some reason, NAV is adjusted a day afterwards for some reason, and your data now can't be backed up to anything, yeah, I absolutely think compliance really needs to hunker down on this aspect.
2: Yeah, I'm going to add one more thing, Chaz, and that is I think there's a huge differentiation between actual performance and hypothetical performance. That you know, if I take the question that Julia asked you, you know I think you get very different answers if the firm is using a composite in actual performance versus if it's hypothetical. Uh, you know we, uh, we have to be very, very careful with hypothetical because yeah. it runs a much higher risk of being misleading. And I think a simple control with hypothetical performance is to sample an actual account and actually calculate the performance and see, you know, if it lines up with the hypothetical, very often it doesn't. And therefore the hypothetical performance could be misleading if it's showing outsized performance versus what was actually achieved in client accounts. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, I think that to Julia's point, you know, that doesn't require the compliance officer to recalculate the performance that's something that is pretty basic, pretty elemental and can be done fairly easily. you know, it could be just one or just a handful of accounts that you need to sample, but that's not, i think
3: that's a really good control especially when dealing with hypothetical performance. And this is actually where I've been inviting firms to contemplate how they should consider this last prohibition of otherwise materially misleading is really, I've been asking firms, take a step back, right? Put the material down. If you were the audience reviewing this, how could you determine that this would be otherwise materially misleading? I know we have a prohibition on misleading performance, for for instance, and how how it's displayed. But this could be a concept where you do take a step back as a compliance professional to determine Where could this be otherwise materially misleading? Um, And and that could come from the hypothetical. That could come from the way you're presenting performance in a certain way. So, I've been challenging firms to really think about that. And I think some ways goes to the points that we're talking about here.
2: Yeah, and I know we're talking about considerations in marketing approval workflows. And, uh, you know, I... I I think that, Jazz, you made a great comment before about uh, you know, embedding compliance in the business lines and being collaborative you know, when developing the policies and procedures. Well, that collaboration doesn't necessarily need to end when developing the policies and procedures. It can continue in the workflows. And I'm going to give you a good example. Uh, I think that there's the age-old uh, confrontation between compliance and the business development people, right? they're very often the ones that are going to be pushing you know the hypothetical performance that makes the firm look good and we're pushing back saying well that could be misleading right and and i think that use uh, you, you know to your point being collaborative at that point with the business development people so that they understand where we're coming from and why we're pushing back you know, it can go a long way to helping everyone, you know, manage this marketing approval workflow a lot more efficiently and a mo- lot more civilly um, when you just sit down and, and they appreciate where you're coming from.
1: And correct, to your point, you a lot, it is oh, the ahead, business Julia. development team. I was just going to say, to Craig's point, it is often the business development team who's calculating and creating a hypothetical track record, and performance is usually not involved at all. And so, to the extent that those teams are different, um, it's helpful to get the performance team involved, at least to understand, because they understand calculation methodology, they'll at least be able to tell you if what you're doing is is aligned with industry standard, so that when you're presenting that information, it looks reasonable to, to the market. Yeah.
2: Great. Yes, great I have speakers. a question for Julia since I know you're a performance specialist and you you work with a lot of different firms, what percentage of firms that you're working with um, prohibit hypothetical performance?
1: Outright prohibit? Yeah. Um not not a, not a lot right now. I think there are firms who are contemplating that as part of the new rule given their audience. I'm thinking of those firms that maybe have more of a retail base and than, than not, but I think that For the firms that most often show hypothetical performance, it tends to be on the private fund side as is. And I think they're going to continue to show hypothetical performance with appropriate disclosure going forward. All
2: right. So here's the million dollar question, Julia. If you were the CCO of a retail RIA, would you be inclined to want to prohibit hypothetical performance?
1: Oh, this is why I'm a performance professional, not a science (laughs) professional. Um, I think that in certain circumstances, depending on the type of hypothetical performance you're showing, it can be very helpful to the marketplace and that there's a way that you can do it so it's not misleading. And that's ultimately what you're trying to to, to not do is not to mislead. And so I'm thinking about sheer, you know, the most common we're seeing right now in the marketplace is firms that have managed their own mutual funds and they are allocating percentages to their mutual funds. And so that that combined performance is hypothetical, but the underlying mutual funds underneath that or ETFs are actual. And so it's really just that that blend that is making it hypothetical. And I think that there's enough actual performance there with appropriate disclosure that it could be reasonable to continue to show that type of information. If we're talking about back-tested model performance, I'm I'm probably going to have a different answer for you.
2: Yeah. So I have one more question for you, Julia, because I'm enjoying your your commentary. Uh, so with you mentioned private fund advisors, and uh, I think a common struggle for private fund advisors with regard to performance is the distinction between targeted performance, which is aspirational, and projected performance. Right. Maybe if you could take a moment to address that, because I think that's a, a common struggle. And the, the SEC, in the adopting release, they took a couple of pages to address that.
1: They did. And we had a, a lively exchange last night <laughs> at our firm about this exact topic. I think, to your point, it is aspirational, and, and it can still be useful information. It's just a, it, And it's often used in private funds and and in closed-end private funds, right? They're trying to show you what they'll be able to do when when the fund starts to liquidate. And I think it should be allowed and with appropriate disclosure. The fact that it's being created into an umbrella of hypothetical performance I think was an interesting move. I could see... I read the adopting release too. So I can see why they thought they considered the fact that it's aspirational and the fact that it, it could not happen, which is why they wanted extra protection around that type of performance. I think that that's fine. It's, it's interesting that it's considered hypothetical. And because of that, there's, it's also subject to other parts of the rule, like net a fee performance. And what does that look like? And I think, I think that that's maybe a conversation for a different day, but, but I think that it's. It's clearly within the rule that it's being considered hypothetical, and that you need to be thoughtful about its use.
2: Yeah, just one final comment, and that is, I know we're talking about private fund advisors now, but if you're talking about a private fund investor, uh, they're going to be at a minimum accredited, right? Which means that they're, you know, uh, generally more sophisticated, more experienced. And that's not always the case, but generally. You know, uh, under mm-hmm. our rubric of SEC regulation, you know they're considered more sophisticated investors and therefore they should have the ability, you know, to discern targeted versus projected returns and understand, you know uh, that these are hypothetical versus, you know, being unrealistic in terms of expectations of what, you know their investment will actually do once they make an investment you know whereas a very unsophisticated investor sure you wouldn't have that same expectation which is i think one of the main concerns that the sec has with regard to you know uh, presenting
3: performance that it can be misleading
0: chaz you were part of the spirited discussion last night anything you want to add to uh
3: yeah, I, I just to the retail point. Maybe this is more of a personal perspective than a than as a it's a professional. Like how, the burden of proof is going to be on the firms to document to understand and document memorialize that the hypothetical performance was appropriate for the audience. And like, how do you do that for a retail investor? What understanding? What does the firm need to gather? Um, especially, let's say it's a, a limited. Uh, time before you've been introduced to that retail investor before you're giving this presentation, it's going to be a challenge for firms. And I think that it's kind of more to Fred's point is just how do you get there from a retail perspective? To your point, if you're a pension that you have, you know, attorneys on your side, a consultant on your side, you've got a chief investment officer. It's a different discussion, but if it's, if it's more of that retail element, less than accredited, where do you, what is enough documentation to to substantiate that um, it's the appropriate uh, presentation? And that could be very hard.
2: Yeah, and I have one last uh, comment with regard to um, workflows, and, and this is an exercise that I think is really helpful. And so this will be like my uh, my first takeaway and tip, and that is that marketing review almost inevitably involves subjective decision making. Right. When is something misleading? Well, that's that's purely subjective. And so one thing that's really helpful, especially for firms that have multiple compliance officers or compliance staff to get some calibration in terms of consistency of review uh, and exercise is to take a piece and then have everyone on staff uh, in the compliance department. Review that piece and then compare notes afterwards. You can either do it together or you can do it separately, but I think that helps in terms of, of of calibration. And and I think that one thing that's important is you know I know that when I was chief compliance officer, you know I would say you know where I wanted this calibrated if I wanted to calibrated conservatively or liberally or kind of. You know, down the middle, you know, uh, and that is a policy decision that came from the CCO and then was communicated to the staff. And then hopefully through this group exercise, you know, was a step towards actually implementing that calibration with the marketing reviews. But I think that's a really helpful tip. The one last thing is even if you're what I call an OCO or an only compliance officer staff of one, you don't have anybody else. You review all the marketing yourself. You know, if you have a consultant, maybe an ACA consultant, right? You can uh, do this exercise with them. You can you can review it. You can have your consultant review it. You can compare notes, discuss. You know, and uh, I think that's a really good exercise. Or if you don't have a consultant, you know, you could uh, use a friend. You know, hey, you know, I got this friend over at another firm. You know, hey, you send me a piece, I'll send you a piece. We'll both review, and then we'll compare notes on both pieces. You know, so th- there there are ways to do this. And I think in doing that, if you come up with good examples, you know, ones that are going to be uh, maybe not your typical like quarterly newsletter or not your typical you know Orion performance report, but maybe you know you have one advisor that wants to start using Google Reviews, you know, and you want to say, well, you know, this is how I, uh, you know, set up the controls and and kind of uh, laid down the the rules here and these are disclosures and where I implemented and how I implemented them. right? And then that might be a really good example to compare notes on where you're in basically new territory.
0: Excellent. Well, we've got about 15 minutes left and, and a few other um, areas that we wanted to cover. So maybe Julia, why don't we shift now to how to think about setting a date for implementation and training and share your perspective and suggestions um, around that and then Craig and Chaz would love to hear from you as well
1: yeah so I think I mentioned this before, but just a reminder that November 4th is the effective date. So finding out when your firm's effective date is, is going to be helpful for understanding when you're setting the date for implementation. Like I said before, 3Q seems to be the time that everybody is kind of landing on because those materials that'll be available will probably be ready by the end of October. Um, so that gives you a few days to kind of to flip that switch for implementation. Uh, And then I would think training would need to happen before that time so that you're identifying and letting all the teams and business units know what changes are, are made to the discussions that we've had already, you know, hopefully you've been interacting with your business unit, so your various teams at your firm, and so they're aware of the changes, it's just one final training, essentially, to let them know that this is going into effect. As a reminder, this is what we discussed, this is what you'll be able to do going forward, this is what you will need to stay away from, that type of information is just helpful so that everybody has buy-in for the effective date. Kaz, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, equal sentiments. And I think part of it too is if you haven't already started thinking about it now, please do because we, we are running into a lot of firms who, who we Julia and I walk into a gap analysis and it's kind of laissez faire. And then once we start having these discussions and we start reporting findings, even on just initial calls, it start, starts to turn into, Oh my gosh, we don't have enough time because you have the review element. You've got the policy and procedure element. You've got the, as Julia mentioned, the training element. It's a lot of work. And so part of it, I think too, should be, you know, I have an uh, ongoing clients that are very straightforward firms. They have two or three pieces that they reuse all the time. It's not a lot of diversity. It's going to be a little bit easier of a lift. But if you are a firm that has multiple materials that are unique in many ways, um, that's going to be a bigger challenge. So, yeah, I mean, just to your sentence, Julia, I I think my only takeaway would be if you haven't started, do it now, because it it is a lot bigger of a lift than I think most firms anticipate. And Craig, what is your experience and and what
0: would your advice be here?
2: Yeah, so I have a couple of suggestions
0: for implementation and training.
2: One, I think a really helpful tool is to have a marketing disclosure library, not only for the compliance department, but that's disseminated to the content creators within the firm. Because one of the most common uh, reasons that a a submission is going to be not in good order, what I call NIGO, is it's lacking proper disclosures. And so, if you give people a library of disclosures, they can go through this library and have some template disclosures, put them on there. And uh, I think that's really helpful, is to have a marketing disclosure library. There is one available in the NSCP resources library. The other thing that I think uh, is important to do when doing training is to understand your firm. What are the common reasons that uh, at your firm submissions have been not in good order and i think what you'll find is that there's going to be some patterns that develop and when you see certain patterns then you can address those particular issues specifically and they're not going to be within your policies and procedures so let me let me give you an example i think some of the most common reasons that a piece might be not in good order is one it doesn't have been adequate disclosures and the way to address that is as i mentioned really helps to provide the content creators with a disclosure library Second is the use of promissory language. You know that's a, a really common thing that you know when we spot within a marketing piece that if you're promising you know um, certain levels of service or certain uh, other elements within the marketing piece, that can be problematic. Absolute statements. I know the SEC takes a real hard line that if they can find even one exception to a statement that you've made, that statement is untrue and so when you make absolute statements you have to be really really careful and the uh, cure for that is to use hedging language you know so instead of for example saying that we provide best in class service that's an absolute statement but if you say we strive to perform provide best in class service now it's not absolute anymore. You know it's aspirational. You know, and, and it's not promissory. You know, and and that's a very simple way through just adding you know one word like we may or we we strive to or things like that. You can cure those absolute statements. The other one is hyperbole or marketing hype, right? Uh, I know the SEC doesn't take very well to marketing hype because it can be misleading and again using you know their yardstick of if we can find even one exception then it's not true so marketing hype is another common reason that pieces will be rejected and then the last one and this is going to be right up Julia's alley which is um, incomplete performance information or disclosures and i think if you understand those are common ones within the industry but again I think a, a little bit of forensic analysis and knowing your firm, and maybe even going beyond just knowing your firm, knowing the particular content creators at your firm, you know, and, and maybe doing an analysis of uh, you know why pieces were rejected and if patterns developed, and then doing training specific to address those patterns, I think is a really helpful tool in terms of making
0: the training uh, much more effective. Craig, it would be great to, um, given our time, stick with you for a moment because you mentioned sort of this metric of not in good order and what generally the reasons are. As we turn to suggestions and testing and monitoring, you link that metric with other metrics like first submission approval percentage to do some interesting analysis. Can you talk through some testing and monitoring um, suggestions that you have in that regard? Yeah, you hit upon my favorite first submission
2: approval percentage that if you can create a metric, you know, uh, I know Peter Drucker, the, the famed management consultant said what gets measured gets managed. And if you can measure the effectiveness of your marketing review through a simple metric, first submission approval percentage means, and it's not hard to calculate of all the submissions that came in, how many, what percentage got approved on their first submission and what percentage, therefore the the counter to that is going to be what percentage got rejected on the first submission. Right. And obviously if you calculate that, that's going to be your, your uh, baseline. And from that, You're going to want to try to attempt to approve that number, not only for the firm, but for each individual content creator. And you can do a little bit of analysis. Okay, why were these pieces rejected? And then you complement that with the targeted training. And now you can measure the effectiveness of your training. And you should see it in improvement in the first submission approval percentage and i think that is a really really good way to manage the marketing approvals and and you know everyone wins when you do that you know you're happy from compliance if a piece comes in there's no problems with it it's approved and they're happy because they don't want to have to, you know, get their piece rejected and have to rework it in some way. You know, if it gets approved on the first submission, everyone, everyone wins. And so I think working through through to that common goal, which is number one, creating the metric, and then number two, having a way to affect that metric through targeted training, I think is a really good combination.
0: Great advice. Julia, what about you? Any monitoring and testing tips?
1: I think from a performance perspective, we talked about substantiation. So if that's the first time firm's compliance officers start looking at substantiation, a suggestion may be to also start t- thinking about how you're going to test those really early track records that are being shown. Early on in the podcast, Chaz mentioned books and records, and there are times that we've seen a since inception return back to 1988. Um, I think it might be worth taking a look at those really long histories to see if you really still do have the substantiation for those track records that are being
0: shown. Excellent. And Chaz, any tips you want to make on monitoring and testing?
3: Yeah, I leverage technology if you can. I know I hearkened back on this earlier in the podcast, but you know whether it's a, an ACA tool or another tool, it was another provider. Utilize technology. It's a standard setter. It sets the correct expectations across business groups. There's an audit trail. It allows for substantiation, and I think it just gets people in the habit of of utilizing you know, best practices. And even to one of the things I you know forgot to mention earlier is just RFP language. A lot of firms are going to have to reckon with RFP language, and can you utilize software for you know um, buy-in across the organization for standard language that's going to be used if that's something you if, if RFPs are something you're responsible to. So. Uh, and just look back testing. It allows compliance to do targeted um, analysis, you know, to Craig's point about doing metrics that could be logged there. So technology where you can if and if, if
2: yeah, I have one last segue. important
3: Yeah, one, one last important comment before we segue.
2: <laughs> and that is with regard to monitoring and testing, I think it's important to understand the difference between strong controls and weak controls. Strong controls are ones that do not require any cooperation on the part of uh, anyone or the firm. Weak controls do require cooperation. And I would put marketing in the category of a weak control because it requires voluntary submission of materials for approval. One of the most challenging things uh, to detect is unsubmitted, unapproved marketing materials. Right? What if someone just didn't submit it and they're out there using it Right, And so a couple of ways to address that are, one, I think building that into the um, examination program. You know, if you're going to be going out and doing branch examinations or, you know, uh, if you're going to be on site for remote locations, you know, what do you see? You know, what can you uh, ask about? What can you find? You know, that's one way. And then we have a great tool, and that is the Internet you know, using, um, internet searches is a really good way to find potentially, uh, unapproved advertising. And I think the most common one is going to be someone didn't get their LinkedIn profile approved. Right. And that's, that's, that's easy. That comes right up, you know, when you do an internet search and, and taking that one step further, you can actually set up Google alerts, you know, for each of your advisors, you know, and that way, anything that hits the internet, you know, will get flagged and come to you in, in a Google alert. So that's another way that you can detect, you know, potentially
0: unapproved advertising. Excellent. Well, you guys both touched on Craig and Chaz's ways in which um, technology can help with monitoring and testing. And our last subject, Julia, and I'll turn to you more broadly. How can technology help with implementation, execution, ongoing monitoring in your experience around advertising? Yeah,
1: so to the extent that we're talking about performance, I would say a composite management system, an accounting system to help you calculate performance so you're not doing that in in spreadsheets, I think would be the number one way um, to assist a firm in implementing the rule and making sure they're executing and providing performance consistently. Some components of performance may still be outside of a system, but to the extent that you can get that into a system I think will make your lives a lot easier. And then I'll also just add to the to the technology piece around disclosures, um, we have a technology group within our firm and they always talk to us about natural language processing and how it's re- they're really starting to use it to help automate the review of disclosures. Minimize errors and standardize the review where possible. Um, and so, to the extent that that technology is becoming more widely available and and firms are able to use that, I think that that might be a really good way to to help on the disclosure front as well.
0: Excellent, Chaz. Any closing thoughts from you on on technology?
3: Yeah. Um- just kind of what I said before, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record. It's just, I mean, we keep talking about substantiation. I think technology can go a long way in assisting firms with substantiation. To Craig's point, whether it's the internet with your resources that you're citing, whether it's you know, saving down the appropriate material for you know, collective understanding within the firm, um, I think my biggest takeaway for, for technology would be substantiation and getting everybody on the same page.
0: Excellent. And Craig, why don't you bring us home with your closing thoughts on how to leverage technology?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to understand the strengths and weaknesses of technology. Technology are basically uh, computers are good at two things. One, they're good at calculations and crunching numbers. Number two, they're good at organizing large amounts of data. Right. What they're not good at, is making subjective decisions. Now, to Julia's point, when you mentioned natural language processing, they're getting better. You know, we're we're moving our way up the spectrum from NLP, leveraging into machine learning and even artificial intelligence, but they're not quite there yet, right? And so I think if we understand what uh, computers are good at, crunching numbers, analyzing and managing large amounts of data, uh, how do we apply that in the context of the marketing rule, well, I think that uh, the best example I can put forth is um, in the old days. The way that marketing was handled is you would set up a an email box, you know, advertising at and then whatever the firm's domain is. And any submissions were emailed to that email box, and when they were submitted. They had to include a form, which was basically an advertising cover sheet. And they had to say on there, you know, who it was, what it was going to be used for, you know, and a few other things on the cover sheet. Well, those processes are becoming now automated. I know that you mentioned ACA's Compliance Alpha, and there's a lot of other programs. That are automating this process, you know, so that you don't have to have a manual cover sheet anymore, that you're collecting data through the submission process in an automated way that is organized, processed, and made more usable, much to our advantage. And so I think that's a good example of the ways that, you know, technology is improving and making our jobs easier as compliance officers and approving marketing. And then the last one I'm going to want to mention is with regard to performance. You know, Can you imagine all the calculations that have to be done to calculate performance and doing that without a computer, doing it manually with a slide rule or a calculator? Get it. <laughs> it's, it's going to be almost impossible. So there's a, another you know really important use case for technology. But basically, I think for the typical retail firm, we're going to be in that area of subjectivity, right? Trying to decide when something is marketing hype, trying to decide when something, you know, is um, promissory in nature. You know, those typical violations that I mentioned. Um, computers won't really be of much use in terms of assisting you in making those kind of determinations, which is why I went back to the human element. Of compliance, and that uh, trying to calibrate, doing the you know team exercises and things like that, because ultimately, marketing review is a skill, and the way that we as humans develop skills is through practice, experience, and mentoring right? And that's something that I think is at least a few years away, you know, from uh, computers and technology taking over some of those functions. There's still going to be, for the foreseeable future, a significant human element in marketing review.
0: Excellent. Well, that's a great theme to stop on, right? Which is that um, increasingly today, compliance is a strategic partnership between humans and technology and data, right? And, the best way to approach really the implementation and execution of any new requirement is through a good combination of those. And thanks to all of you for sharing great insights on how to do that uh, across the board. So that brings us to the end of our time. I just want to say thanks, uh, Craig, Julia and Chaz for an excellent discussion and your very valuable insights, suggestions and tips. Uh, for successful implementation, this also brings us to the end of our masterclass on the new ad, on the new marketing rule. So, on behalf of Patrick, NSCP, and ACA, we hope you found this to be an informative and helpful resource, and we wish you all the best of luck with your new marketing rule compliance journey. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. Thank you.